Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 42. Wait, where are we? This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, members are listening to an episode on Celtic women. Here's a sample. And to start with, let's have a few Roman quotes. Diodorus says, The women of the Celts are nearly as tall as the men, and they rival them also in courage. Ammianus wrote, A whole troop of foreigners would not be able to withstand a single Celt if he called his wife to his assistance. The wife is even more formidable. She is usually very strong and has blue eyes. In rage, her neck veins swell. She gnashes her teeth and brandishes snow-white, robust arms. She begins to strike blows mingled with kicks, as if they were so many missiles sent from a string of catapults. The voices of these women are formidable and threatening, even when they are not angry, but being friendly. If you'd like to learn more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Karina, John, and Michelle for signing up already. Now, as I was putting this episode together, I realized that we've been doing this for nearly a year. Can you believe that? Nearly a year. And in that time, we've gone from about 16,000 BCE, well, a little bit before, but really things started going at about 16,000 BCE, and we've taken it all the way up to 410 CE. Now, podcasters note here, I'm going to stop using BC and AD because, well, they're never really used anymore, and it was just a force of habit over those years of Catholic school that I occasionally refer to that got me saying BC and AD. So we're not going to do that anymore. I'll be using BCE and CE. Anyway, so I was thinking about it, and I suspect that throughout all the stories and henges and whatnot that we might have lost the forest for the trees. And we're at a distinct period in history where the island is going to move in a new direction. So I think that even though we're not quite at the one-year mark, now is probably the best time for us to do a recap of what we've covered. A sort of lightning review or historical blitzkrieg to help you put everything into context and see the full flow of the story that I've been telling you over the last almost 12 months. But keep in mind, this is a bare-bones review and assumes you already know all the stories and context. So I'm just giving you the raw events. If you're new to this, you probably should listen to the podcast since this is unlike any other episode I've ever done. Typically, the episodes are story-driven, but this one is going to be much more like a classroom review to remind you of everything we've spoken about over the last year. So I think this is basically going to be our first, wait, where are we episode? So let's do this. We start at 16,000 BCE, and for the sake of ease, and so I don't annoy you by constantly saying BCE, I don't know if you're like me, but when I start hearing the same word over and over and over again, it's about all I can hear. So instead of me constantly saying such and such date BCE, let's just all agree that every date that I mention from this point forward is going to be BCE until I tell you that we're in the CE era. And just to make sure you know what we're talking about here, BCE means before common era, CE means common era. Okay, so everything for us started at about 16,000. And that's when we had the peak of the ice ages and big ice domes were weighing down entire continents. It was cold. But things started to really warm up and by 11,500, we're starting to see vegetation and animals return to Britannia. 
although they still tended to be pretty big, and this was the last gasp of our friends the giant deer. But this warm, giant fauna era didn't last too long, and by 9400, the vegetation and animals generally buggered off because there was a cold snap and everything went all frigid until about 8000. And by this time, things were once again warming up, and the land was actually rising up as the weight was lifting off of it. I mean, the ice was melting, and ice is heavy. Though the sea levels were also rising because, you guessed it, the ice was melting. Anyway, nearly 1,000 years later, at about 7150, we have Cheddar Man, and we possibly also have his hungry neighbors. Then in the middle 6,000s, we start to see settlements in the Hebrides. At about 5840, there was a huge tidal wave in the North Sea that, along with the erosion and tidal changes, led to the eventual destruction of the marshy land bridge that some people have called Doggerland that connected Britannia to the mainland. So let's fast forward to 3900. We're now seeing evidence of agriculture and trade between Scotland and the continent in the form of the Balbrides structure. This was probably also accompanied by the spread of disease. About 600 years later, in around 3300, we have henges that start to appear in Scotland. These are the first in the world. A hundred years later, Britannia hit its climatic optimum, which was about 2 to 3 degrees centigrade higher than it is now. And Britannia went through a period of rapid growth, but, you know, rapid on a geological scale. And parts of the island developed woodlands that were so dense that it would have almost been like a rainforest. Throughout this, we saw some amazing structures being built, such as the Tomb of the Eagles in about 3000 and Mace Howe in about 2800. Now a new culture had started to appear on the island, primarily starting in the south, and this was around 2700, and this culture was known as the Beaker Culture, so named because of their use of clay beakers for drinking. Around 200 years later, we have Scara Bray being abandoned, and tomb and monument building beginning to slow down especially in Scotland. But it was slowing down for the most part. You see, at this point in history, you also have Stonehenge getting completed. So monument building wasn't entirely done, just mostly done. Also, the weather started to change and things were getting colder again. And 100 years after that, Britain hit the Bronze Age, but not all of it. See, the thing about it is, is that the technology that led to the Bronze Age was slow to spread, and it wouldn't be until about 2000 for metalworking to finally reach Scotland, for example. So let's fast forward one more time, and now we have Hecla, the Icelandic volcano, exploding in 1159, potentially causing a corresponding recession in Britannia. And a lot of Scotland's population probably died and or moved south during this period. We also saw a sudden rise in the manufacture of weapons and a corresponding decline in farming tools. Shortly thereafter, at around 1000, we saw the appearance of hill forts in Britannia, as well as ponies. So at about 700, Britannia finally reaches the Iron Age. Well, bits of it do. There are still parts of Scotland that were now just entering the Bronze Age, so there was a bit of a lag. But the appearance of iron heralded the rise of Celtic culture on the island, sometime between 500 and 400. So now we've got the Celtic culture, and with that we have all kinds of new stuff, such as new languages, cultural behaviors, artwork, and we even have chariot burials, which are kind of fun. 
And now we're getting to the period where we're going to start to have actual written historical records. So this is very exciting. See, now it's 325 and we have the Greek navigator Pythias showing up on the island. And he called the land that he found Pretenike which means basically the land of the painted people or the tattooed people. And eventually that title, Pretenike, morphed into our current name, Britain. So Britain went through a period of rapid development pretty soon after Pythia showed up. And by 250, we're seeing a significant clearance of woodlands out of Scotland and the planting of crops. Things are moving forward pretty quick now, and by 100, we're seeing Gallo-Belgic coins, which were probably payment for British military service on the continent. Now, I should have mentioned this earlier, but all throughout this period, we're starting at the rise of agriculture, we're starting to see evidence of a cultural and trade relationship between Britannia and the continent. Britannia wasn't really isolated and adrift. It was still engaged with the rest of the world. And then, in 56, Caesar got it into his head that he would invade Britannia. But things didn't work out that way, so he ended up invading in 55, and tried to use his buddy, Commius, to strike a bargain. It didn't work out too well, and there were some rather fierce fighting and naval disasters, and eventually Caesar tucked tail back to the continent. But he wasn't done. And he came back with a vengeance in 54 with a fleet of 800 ships, actually over 800 ships. He meant business this time. And he ended up defeating the British war leader Cassivellaunus, and then went back to the continent rather proud of himself. Sometime during this period, we also have Lindau Man, that fellow who seems to have been struck on the head, strangled, and then had his throat cut. And then he was chucked into the bog. You know, like you do. Now, it's been argued that this is evidence that the Druids did ritual sacrifice on occasion. So, you know, there you have it. Something interesting is happening there. Anyway, following Caesar's withdrawal, we've got a period of relative peace. Oh, the Romans weren't happy about it, and there were three cancelled invasions by Augustus and a comical cancelled invasion by Caligula where he conquered some clams, but in general, Britannia was secure and peaceful, at least from without. There was certainly some intertribal warfare going on on the interior, and during one of these wars, Verica, or Berica, the king of the Atrobates, was exiled by Caractacus of the Catavolani. And this actually provided the new emperor Claudius with all the reason he needed to launch an invasion. And I should mention now that all the dates that I'll be mentioning this point forward are CE. So in 43, but remember we're in the CE period now, Emperor Claudius sent Aulus Plautius to conquer Britannia. And he found himself in pitched battles against Togodomnus and Caractacus. Togodomnus was killed during one of these battles, but Caractacus survived and became a rebel leader after the Britons were defeated. There was also a stage-managed attack on Camelodunum with war elephants, but whatever. In the end, 11 kings of Britannia submitted to Rome, including a king from Orkney. Rome then went about trying to impose Romanization with an iron fist. Camelodunum was leveled and turned into a Roman town for legionary veterans. The tribes were disarmed, sometimes forcefully if they rebelled when the troops came demanding weapons. And there was all kinds of just brutal behavior. During this period, Caractacus was out there fighting against the Romans along the border of their territory and causing a lot of trouble for them. Until Governor Scapula came along and fought him at Care Caradoc. The ghost fences failed, and Caractacus was forced to flee from battle, leaving his family and brother to the tender mercies of Scapula. 
But just because he escaped doesn't mean that Caractacus was doing well. He ended up actually going to the Brigante, a tribe in northern England, seeking assistance. And instead, their queen, Cartamandua, handed him over to the Romans, thus sparking a huge conflict within the kingdom of the Brigante that would last for decades. But don't forget that Caractacus was kind of badass, and so when he was brought before the emperor, he managed to give a speech that was so good that he saved his life as well as his family's lives. So good for him. So let's fast forward now to 57. By this point, Nero was emperor, and the trouble that Cartamandua had sparked had resulted in a full-blown rebellion led by her husband, Venutius. This, by the way, is why monarchs should probably marry someone within their own political party. And while this rebellion was going on, the Roman conquest of Wales had also begun, and by 60, the Romans found themselves on the shores of Inis Mon, or modern-day Anglesey and butchered the Druidic college they found there. And with that, Rome had nearly brought the rebellious Welsh territories to heel. And then some damn fool let Decianus Catus be in control while the governor was off fighting the Welsh. And Catus was an idiot, and couldn't control his own people. So they got out of control, especially with the Iceni, and their outrages led to Boudicca's rebellion. And Boudicca wasn't messing around. She burned down Camelodunum, Londinium, and Verulamium before she finally locked horns with Suetonius, the governor of Britannia, and was defeated. Suetonius followed up his victory with shocking genocidal atrocities all throughout the south that were actually so bad that he ended up getting replaced. Fast forward to Nero's suicide in 68, and the chaos that followed gave Venutius the window he needed, and he managed to seize the throne of the Brigante, and finally ruled as king. Meanwhile, Cartamandua legged it to Rome. Which actually probably wasn't the best place to be, because in 69, we saw the year of the four emperors. And in the end of that year, Vespasian ended up being at the top of the pack. And he put Petilius Serialis, whose prior claim to fame was getting his butt kicked by Boudicca, in place as governor of Britannia. And he led several campaigns into northern England and Scotland, and eventually ended up forcing Venutius out of power. So let's go forward to 78. And now we've got Agricola ruling Britannia. And he shows up and immediately goes about crushing the Welsh territories. And within a year, the Welsh are subdued, and then he marched north. By 80, he was into Scotland and fighting the Caledoniae. It looks like he intended to stop, but a change in emperors, because now we've got Domitian, meant that Agricola had to press on. And that led to the Battle of Mons Graupius in 83, or 84. This was a massive battle, and according to Tacitus, the Caledonian alliance suffered heavy casualties. It's also notably the last battle that mentioned the Ninth Legion. At about this same time, Demetrius of Tarsus encountered a bunch of holy men who might have been Druids on an island that might have been Iona. So while Druidism was getting wiped out elsewhere, Scotland seemed to be potentially still clinging on to the old ways. Following Agricola's triumphs, the governor suddenly turned into actually a kind of cuddly figure and started treating the Britons relatively well. This was a major change in the policy of Romanization of the territory, and this was also probably helped along by the assassination of Domitian. He wouldn't be missed. So now let's fast forward to 119-ish. And now we're seeing a major rebellion in Britannia, and one that was so bad that Hadrian had to come and visit. He ended up going back in 122 to correct the, quote, many faults, end quote, of Britannia. So I suppose things weren't going too well. And he actually brought the 6th Legion to help him on his task. So, I mean, things are going really bad. And in that same year, 
construction on Hadrian's Wall began, and it would be finished six years later. Considering its size, that's a hell of an achievement. So Hadrian ended up dying, and he was succeeded by Antoninus in 138, who was supposed to die shortly, but rudely kept on living. And in response to the war that Rome found itself against the Brigante and the Britons beyond the wall, he ordered the legions to go north, and by 142, the construction of the Antonine Wall began. This was significantly further north than Hadrian's Wall. Now, despite the fact that this was actually a smaller wall, it took 12 years to complete twice as long as Hadrian's Wall. And get this, five years after it was completed, so in 157 or 158, it was abandoned. But worry not, wall lovers, it was retaken and rebuilt pretty shortly thereafter in 160. But in 162, it was abandoned yet again. And incidentally, now we have Marcus Aurelius as the emperor. So let's fast forward to 180. And here we have Emperor Commodus, that's Marcus Aurelius' brutal and stupid child, as the sole emperor of Rome. This might have caused the northern Brits to go on a rampage, or they might have just taken advantage of the imperial chaos and seized the opportunity. Regardless, suddenly the Brits beyond the wall went berserk, and now we're suddenly seeing several towns getting walls, which is pretty significant. Typically, towns weren't allowed to get walls. Now, in 185, the British legions had enough of Commodus and his behavior, and they tried to install a new emperor in Britannia. But that didn't go so well, so they marched on Rome with a list of demands. And Commodus relented and gave them a new governor, Pertinax. And after getting back to Britain, the British legions tried to make Pertinax an emperor. But he refused. So they tried to kill him in the following year. But that failed... So things were a little bit awkward, and in the end, he resigned. To cut a long story short, the Praetorian Prefect organized the assassination of Commodus and set Pertinax up as emperor in 193. And then they assassinated Pertinax. <laughs> so suddenly we have four emperors, including one from Britannia. The one from Britannia, his name was Claudius Albinus. He was the governor of Britannia. And they're all fighting over Rome. And one year later, only two remained, Severus and Albinus. And Albinus was actually serving as a junior emperor beneath Severus. But things didn't go too well because two years later, Severus tried to assassinate Albinus, which sparked a war that would last a year and would see Albinus dead at Lyon and Severus as the sole emperor of Rome. This was followed by a period of brutal reassertion of power, often at the hand of the former head of the emperor's secret police and also of rebuilding, which included the retaking and restoration of Hadrian's Wall in 206. But apparently during this period, there were also some serious troubles along the borders, and they got so bad that the governor requested the emperor to come to Britannia. And that's never something a governor wants to have to do. So in 206, Severus, along with his wife and two awful sons, Caracalla and Gaeta, arrive in Britannia and promptly invade Caledonia. During the peace talks that followed, Severus's son, Caracalla, tried to kill him, but failed. Awkward. But peace was established, and actually, the Welsh Rebellion, there was a rebellion in Wales too, came to an end. But it didn't last too long, and in 210, the Maite, who were also a tribe beyond the wall, revolted. This really ticked off Severus, so he went on a genocidal campaign, or at least he tried to. He was sick, so Caracalla was put in charge of it. Who better to lead a genocidal quest than your murderous son? 
But Severus died, and Caracal and Geta, the other son, went back to Rome, and Britannia was ignored for quite a while while the Romans tried very hard to wipe each other out one noble at a time. So let's fast forward to 260, and now we've got Emperor Postumus rebelling against Emperor Gallienus, and the following year, Britannia signed on to this rebellion and was part now of the Gallic Empire. Now, there were a number of attempts to defeat Postumus, but they failed, and actually one ended up even wounding Emperor Gallienus. Postumus would end up outliving Gallienus for a year, but he was eventually killed by his own men in 269. The Gallic Empire started to collapse, and in 274, it was defeated. But Britannia wasn't done rebelling. They threw down once more on that same year over the issue of money. And then things were sort of calm for a little while until the governor of Britannia declared himself emperor in 281. But he didn't survive the year. And then there were a bunch of people declaring themselves emperor. Pretty much anyone who had access to purple dye thought they could be emperor. But in the end, Diocletian was the sole emperor in 285. But that didn't last too long. Carousius decided to make a play for the purple in 286 after being sentenced to death by his supervisor. And you know, I've been fired before, but I've never considered proclaiming myself emperor in response. And maybe that's why I'm still Jamie Jeffers rather than Jamie Maximus Augustus Jeffers. So now we've got Emperor Carousius, who's ruling from Britannia. Now the actual Roman emperors, we've got two now who are ruling, aren't pleased with this whatsoever. They didn't feel like sharing with a third emperor. And there were quite a few battles in an effort to dislodge him. But that didn't work out too well, and Carousius held on to his title. Until his financier, Electus, murdered him in 293. And I'm sure that that will be the only time that an empire will be brought down by greedy financiers. Three years later, Electus was defeated by Constantius, and Britannia was brought back into the Roman Empire. Being brought back into the Roman Empire wasn't necessarily a great thing, though, because the empire was doing this whole Christian purge as an economic policy thing, and Britannia had a decent amount of Christians in it. But thankfully, Constantius was a soft touch for a Roman emperor, so Britannia fared better than some other regions. In 305, the Picts launched an attack on Britannia, and Constantius, with his son Constantine, was forced to return to re-establish Roman order. But this trip was a rather fateful one, and in the following year, Constantius died at York, and Constantine was proclaimed emperor by the troops. But the other emperor of Rome wasn't too thrilled about this, since it went against the Tetrarchic system, and in 307, Constantine was forced to return to Britannia just as a Caesar, not as an emperor. He spent quite a bit of time during this period dealing with defensive tactics, rebuilding, and repelling Pictish and Saxon raiders. And actually, raids like that continued to be a problem for the province. We hear of further raids in 310 and 314. Now something significant must have happened during these raids because in 318, Constantine claimed the title of Britannicus Maximus. So good for him. And six years later, he would become the sole emperor of Rome. And things would become absolutely fantastic in Britannia especially if you were a Christian since Constantine had converted to Christianity. Don't forget that Constantine owed much of his fortune to Britannia, so he lavished attention and wealth upon the province. However, his reign as a sole emperor only lasted 13 years, and in 337 he died at Nicomedia, ending this golden age for Roman Britannia. The empire was now split between his sons, and Britannia was given to Constantine II. But he didn't hold it very long because he lost his life fighting with his younger brother, Constans. 
So now it's 340, and Britannia is being ruled by Constans. And two years later, Constans would actually visit the island to deal with, you guessed it, more Pictish raiders. But this is Rome, so we're due for a usurper, and this time it came in the form of Magnentius, one of Constans' barbarian generals. Well, he quite liked purple, so he tried it on in 350. And of course, Constans was dead. I mean, you can't just have him running around. So he was assassinated. And well, that didn't sit too well with the last remaining son of Constantine. So Constantius II marched on Magnentius and fought a number of battles against him. And eventually, Magnentius was killed in 353, and Constantius, not being as fond of Britannia as his father, especially following the rebellion, sent Paulus Catena, Paulus the Chain, to find rebels. And he ended up acting something like an inquisitor, and was so awful that he even led prominent officials to commit suicide. It hasn't even been that long, but now we're a far cry away from the golden age that Britannia experienced under Constantine. Now let's jump forward to 364, and Britannia was now dealing with an increase in barbarian raids. An increase, you're asking? Yep, it's getting even worse. And it's actually going to keep going that way, to the point where now we're at 367 and we've got the Barbarian Conspiracy, and Britannia has been completely lost to Rome. It's now becoming clear how strong the Barbarian tribes are, and while Theodosius was able to reestablish order by 369, things aren't looking good for the Empire, or Britannia. The economy in Britannia is just falling apart at this point. Now, there's more Roman intrigue and dead emperors, and once again, we're now seeing barbarian raids on the rise in 379. And now the economy is doing so poorly that even coin importation is slowing down. Rome was still trying to hold the province, though, so Magnus Maximus, Magnus Maximus, I've missed this guy, was dispatched to Britannia. And he did a great job. Such a great job, in fact, that by 383, he was proclaimed emperor by the legions. So Emperor Maximus took the legions with him and went to the continent to fight his rivals and left the Britons saying, uh, hey, what about us? Which was unfortunate because those Picts, Irish, and Scotty, who were the whole reason that Magnus went to Britannia, had gone right back to raiding. So once again, Britannia was in dire straits. But the following year, Maximus returned and put down those barbarian raiders. But that really didn't last too long, since in 388, he decided to march across the Alps in order to take Italy. And again, Britannia was sapped of troop strength. Unfortunately, Maximus wasn't successful, and he was killed in battle at Aquilia that same year. And of course, there was a corresponding increase in raids of Britannia by the Picts, the Scotti, and the Irish. And pretty soon, Britannia surrendered to Rome in exchange for help with their Pictish problem. Soon thereafter, all temples were closed, and even private pagan sacrifices were outlawed. And the following year, in 392, even objects of spiritual significance, such as incense, were banned. All private acts of paganism were outlawed. Christianity was supreme. And once again, we've got a lot of dead emperors and whatnot. But in 395, Honorius becomes emperor of the West. And only a few years later, in 398, we might have the second Pictish War that was mentioned by Gildas. And if that's the case, it might have involved sea raids and invasions by the Picts. And possibly, the famous Stilicho was involved in the defense of the island. 
But the problem was that the barbarian troubles were all over the place at this point, and so really Rome couldn't spare the attention to just make sure that Britannia was safe. There were just too many problems elsewhere. And so by 401, Stilicho started raising troops in Britannia for his march across the Alps to retake Italy. And yeah, you heard that right. It was occupied by Goths at this point. Now following his victory, it's not clear how many troops had returned to Britannia. But by 405, Niall of Nine Hostages, the Irish High King, was having a field day in Britannia, raiding all up and down the coastline. Rome wasn't interested in helping out at this point since they were too busy with their own continental barbarians. So in 406, Marcus, who was just a soldier in Britannia, was proclaimed emperor. But he was murdered by his army. So then the Brits put Gratian in charge. But he was killed after four months in office. And then they finally settled on an emperor they liked in 407. Constantine III. But he had absolutely no connection to the actual Constantine. This was just... This was just a matter of having a famous name. Anyway, this guy was tough as nails, though. And he immediately took the British forces and crossed over into Gaul and retook the territory from the barbarians. You see, at this point, the Britons considered themselves Romans and were very much against Gaul being occupied by barbarians. Things had changed substantially over the last several hundred years. And then something amazing happened. In 409, Honorius recognized Constantine III as emperor. This has only happened once before with Constantine I. Typically, British usurpers get slaughtered, but we've got one who was recognized and was holding on to power. And remember how Constantine I ushered in a golden age? Well, that was going to follow for Britannia, right? I mean, he's got the name. He's also been recognized. We're going to have a golden age. Well, no. It turns out that now that Constantine III was in charge, he wasn't willing to do enough to stop the barbarian raids that were plaguing the island. So Britannia abandoned him and struck it out on their own. Or maybe they left his empire in an effort to gain Honorius' support. Either way, it didn't go too well because by 410, we have a letter where Honorius is refusing to send the Britons any help and suggesting that they just take care of themselves. And then Constantine III was executed the following year. So where are we right now? Well, we've got the Romano-Britons under siege by the Picts, the Irish, the Saxons, and the Scotty. And provided you live south of the Wall, you probably saw yourself as Roman. Even if you were supportive of the usurpers and whatnot, you typically would have seen yourself as Roman, but you just would have been thinking that you were backing an emperor who was promising to return everything to the good old days. As for lifestyles, the economy was absolutely wrecked. For years, Britannia had money dumped into it, and in certain ways, it could be seen as the jewel of the empire. But by this point in our story, it had become a territory to put embarrassing officials, who were too well-connected to execute, but too awful to want to have anywhere else. So Britannia has gone through a period of great amounts of poverty, and now it was poor, backwards, thoroughly ravaged by barbarians, and incredibly rebellious. Even the Roman towns that were a symbol of power and strength were decaying and falling apart now. And now the island was severed from the empire, and whether or not Honorius intended that to be permanent is irrelevant, because the Western Empire would soon collapse, and Britannia was never again to be a part of the Roman Empire. It was now on its own. And that should pretty much catch you up. 
All right, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me over at Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. You can also go over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and from that website, you can get access to all kinds of little goodies, as well as our forums, which are really taking off, so you might want to go check those out. And I think that's about it. Thanks for listening.